Welcome to the Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Robin King. And I'm Stephanie Shockley. We're your hosts. Today, we'll talk with Pat McKenna. Pat is the Assistant Division Director at the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. He is also an attorney and a longtime guide dog handler who lives with his wife and sons in central New Jersey. So, Pat McKenna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have you here today. Um, and as you know, our podcast mainly focuses on issues uh, related to religion and disability or yeah. faith and disability. Um, but we also promised our audience, as we've been working through our early episodes, we promised our audience that we would do some Disability 101, help with some of the education that um, might be helpful for the general public. Yes. So um, that's one of the reasons that we invited you to come speak with us today, and we're really glad to have you. Um, well, well, thank thank you so much for having me. Um, as as was mentioned, I've been I've been a guide dog uh, guide dog handler now. It's actually been twenty years this past May. So um, I've worked with a number of different different dogs at this point. Um, four, in fact, um, all four of which have been from the Seeing Eye Guide Dog School in Morristown, New Jersey. Right. So twenty years. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's such a that's such a long. Does it seem like a long time or? You know, it, it, um, when I really stop and sit and think about it, um, yeah, it, 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 it does actually. And, um, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm working with my fourth, my fourth dog now. Um, I, I applied for and received my first dog just before beginning, uh, law school in 2001. She worked for me for, um, about six years or so. Um, my second dog worked for longer than that. And when I really sit and think back on it, um, it's, it's amazing to me how much these dogs, how, although the service they provide for me, what they've been trained to do to, to guide me, to enable me to travel independently and safely, um, all four of them have done that and done it very well. But beyond that, their personalities, the way they work, what it is like to live with them, um, so different, so, so, so different. Um, they're very smart. They're learning all the time. I'm learning from them. They learn from me. And it's, it's just it's just incredible how different each one can be from, from their predecessor. And, and I don't think I ever really appreciated that um, years ago when I was on my first dog, of course I, I didn't, I mean, how, how could I, I didn't have any context. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was the only dog you knew was the first that was, dog. Right. That was you. the, that was the only dog I knew. And, and when I got used to working with her um, and, she, of course, was serving as my guide dog. Um, I just sort of assumed that was what all guide dogs were like. And that was the same kind of experience that all guide dog handlers had. And maybe some had similar experiences. But, um, I mean, they, they are, as I said, they're very smart and they're all so, so different. 
So um, we've already gotten a little bit of a taste of your personal experience with guide dogs. Um, yeah. But I'd like to I'd like to back up and do a little bit of informational, uh, like a little bit of some questions that are informational to give people a little bit of um, context and understanding about service animals and, um, you know, kind of answer some of their common questions. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that people often ask, and we thought it'd be really helpful to cover is, can you tell us a bit about the difference between service animals, emotional support animals, and therapy dogs, and maybe give us the sort of lay persons, um, like legal information that we might want to know that for those of of us who are not attorneys about, about that. So, so a service animal is defined under the law as being a dog that is specifically trained to perform a task for the benefit of a person with a disability. And it's that training component that is extraordinarily That's the key. That's the important piece. Has the dog been trained to do work or perform a task? That's what you want to look for. Um, Now, of course, service animals, these dogs, they can be trained to perform a number of different tasks or different types of work for their handler, depending upon what what is needed. Now, in my case, of course, I can't see. So my dogs are guide dogs and they have been trained to guide me safely, independently. But the other dogs, um, depending upon the needs and the disability in question, maybe the dog um, provides support and assistance for a person who is uh, deaf or, uh, or hard of hearing, or um, is a wheelchair user, or maybe an individual who suffers from uh, PTSD. And these dogs then have been trained to um, to perform this task either as needed or upon, upon command, of course, case by case would be different. Now a therapy dog, or I believe emotional support animal, they have not been trained to do work or perform a task for the benefit of an individual with a disability. So that individualized specialized training piece, that's not there. That's not present. The benefit of an emotional support animal or therapy dog is not what they are doing for you as far as a task is concerned, but their presence. Their presence is the benefit. Their presence is the point. Was that helpful or did I, I could have gotten too technical. No, that's actually, that's really helpful. Robin, do you have any follow-up questions? Sorry, I'm one of the people who also takes a moment to think. Uh, no, I think that was a helpful delineation. Um, but this so, is one of the topics I was really hoping we would get into because I think there's yeah. just a lot of confusion because some animals are represented as something they may or may not be with this expectation oh, yeah. of access. Yes. That so, can be dangerous. So you, you've hit, you, you hit on the key word there the word of the hour, access, right? So the law provides protection for service animals. That is, again, a dog that has been specifically trained to do work or perform a task for the benefit of a person with a disability. So that means that I or somebody else who benefits from the services of a 
service animal, um, can go into public places or places into which the public has access with their service animal. Mm -hmm. Emotional support animals slash therapy dogs, they are not protected by the law. And so, whereas I could be accompanied by my, my guide dog, Finn, um, into supermarket, a restaurant, a store, um, an individual who was accompanied by an emotional support animal um, would, not, would not be protected under the law if they were to do so. How do you, like, not you, but like, how would I, sure. as someone who is meeting someone for the first time, how would I be able to sort out what kind of animal they have with them? Right. Yes. Um, so the first thing is um, because not all disabilities are immediately apparent. Right. And that's, yep. that's a really, that's a really important point. So how do you tell um, if it's a service animal or not? Well, well, the first part is has to be a dog. All right. So that's the, that's the first piece. Um, under the Amer under the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act in the states, um, certification documents, ID, verifying that it is a service animal, those may not be asked for. Again, they may not be asked for. Um, so, how do you know? You're a store owner. You're a conductor on a train. How do you know? Well. The two questions that can be asked are, is the animal required because of a disability? And what is the nature of the task the dog has been trained to perform? Those are the, those are the two questions that, that may be asked. Thank you. That's helpful. You know, the complication there is whether people know that, <laughs> you know, in those. Right. So, right. so often... So in 20 years, those two questions, those key questions, the only two questions that are to be asked, I've only ever been asked those once, one time in 20 years. <laughs> it, is, it is more common. Um, the individual um, assumes it is not a service animal or just a pet, or I have no business bringing my dog inside. And so typically rather than those questions, I hear something like, Hey, you get that dog out of here or no pets, or can't you read the sign? That sort of thing. Um, that is 99% of the time. And then I, or uh, other, a different service animal handler would have to say, no, no, this is, uh, uh, this dog has been, uh, uh, trained to perform a task to assist uh, to assist me in this way. And hopefully then the individual will, will say, oh, okay, okay, you know, we're, you know, no, no problem. Sorry about that. Um, and that happens sometimes. Um, and the opposite happens sometimes too, where they say something unpleasant or indicate, well, they don't really care and, you know, get that expletive um, animal out of my place of business. So you really, 
don't always know what you're going to get when you go into a public space. Um, service, this whole area is just sort of a, the, the label it's given is service animal public access challenges. And um, they can take many shapes and forms. Um, they're rarely pleasant. Sometimes you can take care of it by just having a pleasant conversation with the individual in question, or maybe you request to speak to a supervisor that can be helpful. Um, it, it's very, it's very case by case. Um, sometimes emotions get pretty intense and it can get pretty heated pretty quickly. Um, so it's very, you got to keep a cool head. You've got to be patient. You have to be tolerant. Um, after 20 years, I've gotten kind of good at sort of anticipating when I'm going to get a public access challenge. Um, the beach is huge. Um, public access, service animal public access challenges on the beach, um, I have found to be extraordinarily common. Um, stores, especially kind of some of the larger franchise kind of stores, the bo big box stores, Walmarts, Targets, it never happens, never, ever happens. So you just got to always, it's always sort of in the back of your mind, which is unfortunate because you want to, you know, go out for dinner or have a nice day on the beach or go pick up a couple of things from Walmart. And you always sort of have to have in the back of your mind um, that public interaction piece. What if a cashier or a store manager is going to tell us to leave or they're going to challenge us in front of a bunch of people or in front of my kids, you know, and be unpleasant with me and want, want me to take my expletive pet out of the store. Um, or another, a whole nother type of access challenge is they will, they will let you in, but with conditions like imagine a hotel, you're, you're going to go and stay somewhere for a couple of nights and you, you check in and you find you're getting a $250 cleaning fee tacked on your, your hotel stay. Um, that is not permitted by the way, that is not allowed at all. There are to be no additional conditions or fees. However, especially in the hotel context, that's really, really common. And then, you know, you're, you're being allowed to stay there. That's good. But now you have to have this really unpleasant conversation about, well, no, you may not charge me an extra cleaning fee, not $250, not $1. It's not acceptable. Um, or my, my personal favorite, um, ever been to a restaurant where, you know, there might be like outdoor dining and they might have sort of the, the, the pet section where people can eat with their dogs, you know, have the dog under the table. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Right. So, so what happens is we'll go there and I'll say, okay, you know, table for, you know, four and I'll say, oh, right this way. This is our pet friendly section. Like, no, 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 actually I, I don't have to eat and, and, and sit and, and dine in the pet friendly section. Um, 
although you, you might want me to, and you might think because I travel with a guide dog that this is a good thing, but it's not a good thing. And I don't want to, and I choose not to mostly because what I don't want to do is while I'm enjoying my quesadilla or whatever, um, I have to put up with the interactions and the barking and the possible ill behavior of the other pet dogs around me under the adjacent tables. Does that make sense? Oh, total sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and my dog is trained to just lie down, go to sleep and he's done. And he does not get up until quesadilla done, bill paid, tip left, good to go. Um, and, but imagine if now I'm getting visited by the corgi off to the left and getting barked at by the dachshund off to the right. And then the chihuahua, who was never on a leash in the first place, is now under the table chewing on my dog. Right. Like, I don't want that. That is that is not enjoyable for me or him at all. So that's why I never want to sit in those pet friendly um, dining areas or go to, say, the pet friendly beach or what have you. Um, if everyone else's dogs are really well behaved and managed and under control and on appropriately length leashes, you know, like four feet or less, not those crazy extendable leashes. Uh, they're the worst. Oh, they're the worst. They yes. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'd have no problem with it, but, um, that's not been my experience. I mean, there are really well-behaved, wonderful pet dogs out there with great owners who take awesome care and have great control over them. And then there's dogs who are not in that. Yes, exactly. And it only takes one ill-behaved dog on one of those crazy long leashes to really result in me having a bad day. And I don't want that. Yeah. You know, um, I, this is a good segue to one of my next questions, but I'm thinking of a story. Um, I, I remember, I remember going out. I think, I guess, for dinner with a bunch of people. There were like eight or nine of us. Mm -hmm. um, you were there, and there were three or four other guide dog handlers there. Yeah. And then yeah. there were other people with varying vision. Me, and then some people with some yeah. quote regular vision, whatever. And mm -hmm. I, we were somewhere out somewhere in um, New Brunswick, which is where um, Rutgers University is located and it's, it's sort of in central New Jersey. We were all out at this one place and we'd all been there for a while. So we were talking, it was kind of a mm -hmm. raucous table. We were talking and whatever. And eventually, um, so the tables around us started turning over, you know, there were different people there than when we had gotten there because yeah. they weren't having as maybe as good a time as our crew was. <laughs> and right. eventually we all got up to leave and all of a sudden out from the table come like four or five labs of different yeah. colors Right. And the restaurant, like everybody just turned. Yeah. People were shocked because they had no idea yeah. that there were, mm -hmm. there were like four or five, you know, 65 pound dogs under the table. They mm -hmm. never seen them. They knew nothing. They had no idea because they didn't see us come in. Um, and that, I thought that was such a good example of what That's, it looks like when you have a service yeah. animal in public, you know, how service animals operate. You don't even notice that they're there. That's one of the greatest compliments you can give a service animal handler is um, I had no idea they were there. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's the point. That's what they want. That's what the dogs are trained to do. That's what I want. That's just, that's how you want it to be. And so when that happens, right. And you, you get up to leave, you're set to go, you left the tip 
and, and your dog wakes up, comes out from under the table, the people around, you know, that that's normal. They should be kind of surprised. And, and that's, that's nice. That's nice to see. That's nice to hear. And it's a very, it's not a direct comparison. And I want to acknowledge that, but I had a 90 pound dog. And for most of his life, we lived in apartments and I always loved it when a new neighbor would move in. And after a few weeks, they'd see me with the dog and they'd be like, I had no idea that dog was in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And I loved it because it meant he was behaving himself when I was away. Yes. That's great. That's great. And there are plenty of pet dogs out there. I don't want anyone to think I'm, you know, being tough on pet owners. Um, but there's also a bunch that, you know, not, not as, uh, not as great. You know, we all, we, we would all know they're in there, you know, to, to use your <laughs> yes. example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We would all know. So um, the, I, I think the conversation about the pet sec- friendly section of, you know, I, I'm thinking of the fancy New York restaurant that, mm-hmm. uh, the, that might give a, somebody with a service dog a hard time. Um, the conversation about the pet friendly section leads me to the question about um, interference. So I think yeah. that's the sort of a technical term. It um, is. And, yeah. and I was hoping you would talk a little bit about um, mm. service animal interference and what the general public needs to know about that and how they can prevent being part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So it, um, what we're basically talking about is um, conduct or behavior that is encountered that the that the service animal partnership encounters that is disruptive to what it is they are doing. That's really what we're talking about. And it can take many shapes and forms. Um, it might be um, somebody petting your dog. Uh, you're, you're waiting at a crosswalk and the person next to you who's also waiting for the light to change is, is just sort of petting, is petting your dog. And the reason that is so harmful and so dangerous is these dogs are trained to, to do their, their task. And they are trained to, to ignore other, other people, other uh, you know, maybe food that's on the ground, other distractions, other dogs. And if somebody is petting your dog, and a lot of times I don't know about it because I can't see and I might not be aware. And especially if I'm in a crowd, I mean, it would not be difficult for someone to do. And I, I don't know. Well, that's going to be distracting to him. And do I want him to be focused on that person who is touching him or petting his ears or whatever, or watching for cars that are turning and, and judging traffic because I want his attention on that traffic, on that intersection, watching for someone maybe running a red or turning when they're not supposed to, what have you. Um, what if we are waiting in line at, um, well, I mentioned Walmart before, so I'll stick with that. We're we're waiting in line at Walmart and, and, you know, we've got our cart full of stuff and there's a couple of people ahead of us. And the person ahead of me in line begins to touch and interact with my dog. <clears throat> we don't have a crossing busy traffic situation here. So you might be thinking, well, what could be the harm in that? Well, the harm is that 
these dogs are smart and they want acknowledgement and attention and affection. And if they learn that they can receive these things from other people as well, there is a good chance they might then seek that out. And so if while we're waiting in that line in front of the rack of Reese's peanut butter products and he's being touched and interacted and by the person ahead of us in line, well, there's a good chance he's going to look for that same type of positive reinforcement, that same sort of interaction when we are in a different and potentially dangerous situation, such as we're getting ready to cross four lanes of traffic. So touching, interacting, talking to um, someone's service animal is really, really a negative thing to do. It is harmful. It is dangerous. It, it must be stopped. It, it, it has to not happen. Um, now that that's definitely a type of interference. Now, again, it's well-intended. I mean, they're typically dog lovers doing it, you know, and they, oh, you know, he reminds me so much of my dog or, oh, he must smell my cats or my favorite is, oh, I, I can see he's working. I know I'm not supposed to touch, but, and they're doing it anyway. Um, it is, it is extraordinarily common, extraordinarily common. Um, less common are, uh, well, I, I think most, I'm thinking most human sort of distractions like that are, are of kind of that more positive nature. Every once in a while, you'll run into a situation where there are, um, like little kids, you know, maybe, uh, little too rambunctious and they're kind of jumping around or barking at the dog or what have you. I, I usually try to give kids a little bit more leeway and benefit of the doubt and try to turn it into an educational moment. If I can, you can't always, you don't always have the opportunity or energy to do that. Um, but sometimes the rambunctious kid can be quite the, quite the distraction as well. Um, and then we have other dogs. And other dogs can provide a tremendous range of interference. Um, barking at or coming over to sniff or pester my dog. You know, the owner might be saying, oh, you know, he's just coming over to say hello. You know, he's just, he, they're just saying hi. Well, that sounds very nice. And uh, I can tell we're all dog lovers here. And, and that's very well intended but that is also extremely difficult and you're complicating the partnerships work tremendously. And you might be putting it at risk as well, because if we're trying to judge traffic or navigate down a sidewalk past a construction site and your dog is coming over to say, hi, that is not appropriate and can really do some serious harm. And then the next layer on that would be dog attacks. And that would be whether it's a dog on leash or off leash or kind of in that gray zone, right? Like they're on leash, but the leash goes out to like 45 feet. So, you know, they're on kind of leash in name only. And they will rush or charge or snap at or even bite and make contact with your service animal. And that is, um, that can be spectacularly tragic even if there is no 
um, no medical damage, no impact, no blood, no, no actual Mm -hmm. physical bite that takes place. It is not uncommon for service animals after being in a situation like that, where they are rushed or charged or nearly bitten, what have you, where their work is negatively impacted afterwards or worse, they have to be retired and replaced because they no longer, because they are too shaken and rattled by the experience. Imagine if you would, um, you're going to cross a, an intersection. It's a no big deal intersection, right? There's very few cars. It's a piece of cake. And while you're waiting to cross this little, you know, suburban, no big deal intersection, um, a dachshund comes rushing out of nowhere, small little dog, and he comes flying around a corner and making a huge amount of noise. And uh, my dog is, is badly, badly startled by this. So these dogs, as I said, they're, they're really smart. And my dog is now going to remember that. And they will react negatively if they see when they see the next dachshund or maybe next time they see that intersection or perhaps next time they see any dog or any intersection that looks at least somewhat like what they recall from that day. And now while I'm trying to navigate around to work or shopping or my home community, um, the work is being negatively impacted because my dog is suffering trauma from that experience that could have been avoided if the person had their own dog under better control. I don't mean to pick on dachshunds, by the way, it was just sort of randomly chosen. So if anyone's a dachshund owner, I, I love dachshunds fine. And it's just the name I reached for first. So dog attacks, um, they can be terrible even if no contact is made. I mean, that makes so much sense to me just from a like dog behavior understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're great. I mean, they're terrible at cause and effect, except when they think it'll benefit them or, or protect them. Um, my dog for a long time became convinced that anytime I put like chapstick on, it meant I was leaving and he would self-crate because he had a little bit of separation anxiety. So I spent yeah. like three weeks putting chapstick on like all the time to get him yeah. to stop doing that Yeah, because he'd get all wound up for something that was not going to happen. <laughs> but it, it's, isn't that interesting though? I mean, think about, think about what's going on there, how, how observant they are, right? Like that, that small innocuous thing, right? We're going to put on the, chapstick or what have you before going out but your dog noticed and picked up on that and also knew exactly what comes next and then they did the next step and and he put himself in the crate as you as you indicated um they are always thinking they're always thinking and since service animals are typically bred for certain traits such as intelligence and medical soundness so forth. Um, they, they, they learn to watch and to, to study and they get to know and learn their handler extremely well, just as we get to learn and understand our 
our dogs extremely well. I want to give you kind of a variant on the, the, the dog going after, after your service animal on a corner situation. Imagine that this all happens and the service animal was not bit and is fine, completely unfazed, just, you know, no big deal. What was that dog's problem? Just, you know, let it go. But imagine what if the handler was rattled by it, really rattled by it. You're navigating your hometown and you don't know at what point around the next corner, some crazy dog on a flexi lead is going to come bounding out and go after your own dog. And I will tell you from personal experience, that is terrifying because there's a lot of noise and activity and they're all over the place and there's barking and you don't know what's happening and you don't know how to stop it. And the other owner is probably not going to be very helpful. That's assuming the other owner is there. If the dog is off leash or stray, then there is not another owner there. You feel helpless and powerless and uh, your, your partner is getting possibly hurt, possibly badly hurt. And you can hear all of this and you don't know, you don't know how to stop it. You don't know what to do, but let's imagine that it's just really loud and the other dog gets dragged off and the service animal in this hypothetical is completely fine. That handler is going to probably be a nervous, anxious wreck moving forward. Um, when they come to that intersection or other ones like it. And the service animal is going to pick up on that because that's how it works. I pick up on his vibes. He picks up on my vibes. Service animal partnerships are all like that. And so you can end up making your dog nervous and anxious because you're nervous and anxious. So yeah, the, the dog attack the dog attack thing is, um, is really, is really terrible. And being mindful of your own stress and your own anxiety and what you might be projecting is extraordinarily important. I don't do ride share, Lyft or Uber. I've had a number of situations now where I was denied um, access to the car when it pulled up. And, and sometimes it just pulls away and I'm left standing out there because I, I did not realize that they just ghosted me. Um, so that's happened a bunch of times. So Uber and, and Lyft, I find very, very frustrating. So I was taking an Uber once with a friend and the car pulls up and I noticed my dog was exhibiting all of this stress. Like, what's wrong with my dog, right? Like he's looking back up at me, his ears are down. He just seems kind of tense. And then I realized he's tense because I'm tense. I'm a mess because I've had so many negative Uber and Lyft situations. I'm just ready for the next one, you know? And and I was like, wow, it's not him. It's me. I made him like that because I'm this nervous, anxious mess because I'm ready for my next Uber disaster. Now, in, in that case, the, the Uber ride went off perfectly fine. 
and so on. But you need to be really mindful and sensitive to how much they pick up on, you know, whether it's your chapstick before you go out or something else. So, and I want to just say that, that um, just for those who might not know that much about this, who are listening, that issue with Uber and Lyft is, I would call it endemic to, I guess, to use like a a disease phrase, (laughs) but uh, endemic to Uber and Lyft. It has gone on and on and on. They have been sued. They have been threatened. They have, people have um, received theoretically relief in court over it and it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They don't care. Yeah. It's been an ongoing major access challenge. And it's particularly upsetting when you think about the people who are having this issue can't drive. That's why they're using Uber and Lyft. Right. You know, they don't, there's, it's, it's, there's not always a good alternative. Because I'll tell you an Uber or Lyft kind of a ride share situation like that, or getting rushed by another dog on a corner, um, or having somebody who just is insisting on petting your dog or on feeding your dog. I mean, these are, these are all really good ways to ruin your day, to really ruin it. Um, and they're all avoidable. They're all so easily to avoid, but they're so common. So, so common. The comment I, I want to make about all that as someone who has observed a lot of, you know, is not somebody who has ever had a service dog, but has observed a lot in action and has been a lot of travel, you know, been a lot of places with people, you know, walking with people that had service dogs or whatever. Um, comment I want to say about that is this, this sense of, I think people really need to watch their sense of entitlement. And when people are um, somebody who has a service animal is out in the world doing whatever they're doing, like living their life, you don't, they don't necessarily owe you anything. They don't owe you stopping their day with their family to let you pet their dog or they're running late to work. You don't owed petting a dog or, you know, like, you know, I've seen you be nice enough to take the harness off and let somebody pet Finn. Um, or, you know, I knew, I knew a couple of the other dogs as well. Um, but like, that's not, you know, it's, it's not required and you don't owe anybody. I think, I just think it's such an important thing to say. Yeah. That's a great point because I might be out there and maybe it's 65 degrees and a beautiful sunny day in May. And I'm just out, you know, going nowhere in particular with all the time in the world. Um, and I might be more inclined at that point to I might be more patient, more tolerant. I might say, oh, sure, I'll take the harness off. You can say hi to him. This is his name. You know, he was trained at this particular school. He's, he's this many pounds and make it a real educational moment. But the opposite could also be true. It may, maybe it's eight o'clock on a Friday night and I've just worked a killer week and it's pouring rain and 33 degrees. And, and I'm, I'm just trying to get home because, you know, my umbrella's dead and I'm soaked to the bone and someone's like, Hey, can I say hi to your dog? I'm probably not going to say yes at that point. You know, I'll probably have to reach deep just to find the patience and tolerance to just, you know, say something at least remotely pleasant because I'll probably be pretty grumpy and in a bad mood at that point. But we're all like that, right? We all have those good moments. We all have those bad moments. Um, I do try to reach as deep as I can for the, to make it an educational moment. If kids are involved, I think that's really important. Um, 
I, I give, I give, I give kids a little bit more leeway and I, I try to find that extra minute in the busy schedule to take the harness off and really sit and talk with them. If I can, I can't always, but I, I do try. You mentioned education when we started um, that this conversation today, and I am a huge believer in that, but that doesn't mean I've always got the time or the energy or patience for it. Well, and I think one of the things I've noticed and I, I have not been surprised by, but as you describe being a service dog handler, um, it just, there's a higher assumed output of energy and patience that you need because you don't know who you're going to come across and how they're going to interact with you and your dog. And I hope this helps increase the number of people who know how to keep from making your day worse, if not actually make it better. Oh, I, I, I love opportunities like this because, um, you know, it's not like, it's not like there's a lot of service animals out there. Right. And, um, it's, it's, it's a different sort of thing. You know, you're, you're out there and you're, you're doing your daily, uh, activities and, and lo and behold, you encounter this, this incredible thing. And it is incredible. I've been working with them for 20 years and that doesn't mean I'm become, sort of numb to it. If anything, I am more in awe of what they do now than I was 20 years ago. And you, you encounter a dog that has been trained to perform a task for the benefit of a person with a disability. And they're out there and whatever that task is. And um, it's, it's okay to sort of be just impressed by that. Um, it is different. It is, not, it is not every day that that is encountered. Um, but uh, at the same time, it doesn't mean either that that person wants to take time to, to talk to you about it or to let you interact with their dog either. Right. So, um, I think, I think there's this line to walk where, you know, on one side, it's okay to really be, to take note and be impressed by it, but to also give space and let let the person, let the partnership, let them do their thing and don't become the worst part of their day. Don't do it. joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find the local conversation partners to talk about your experiences and other people's experiences of faith and disability. Stephanie, you have known Pat for a long time. He's really sort of your friend was. We've actually known, we actually met as children at, uh, in episode two, I talked about going to a camp for blind and visually impaired children. Um, so we've known each other since 
I believe the mid to late 80s. We're not entirely sure what year we met. So it was the 80s and no one had cell phones. <laughs> well, right. Um, and there are things like stories about me yelling at him in a canoe when we when he was 14 and I was 13. And, you know, so we have like, we have a little bit of a history and then there's like a big gap, but I've known him as a long time for a long time as an adult as well. I I really enjoyed this interview. It both answered a lot of questions I had about how to help facilitate good guide dog experiences for people in church, both for guide dog handlers and for um, people who don't know what they're doing because no one has had this conversation with them. Yeah, I think he did a, such a wonderful job of going over um, all the basics. And obviously, this is something he he's done in a number of venues. I know he teaches attorneys, um, like other attorneys, this, you know, all the different aspects of the law around this and the general tips that he gave, you know, he's talking about guide dogs. Cause that's, as he kept saying, that's what he knows, but the tips that he gave could be used for a service dog for any different kind of disability. Yeah. And I think there's a lot in what he said that comes down to, you know, have a conversation, check in with that person, find out what might be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every experience and every set of needs can be very individual. So, so um, I hope that this um, interview is helpful for people in some very practical ways. Um, We have another section of this interview that's wound up being a very long interview. It was so good. It was was really good. good. Um, I feel like I'm a little biased because obviously this is someone I'm friends with, but um, there's another section of the interview that's going to get into some of some deeper issues about the relationship between humans um, and service dogs. And that'll be in our next episode. And I want to just encourage everybody to listen to that episode as well, because it's going to give some really good information that might be helpful, uh, particularly for those who provide pastoral care to people that have uh, service animals. So um, or if there are people in your life that have service animals, there are ups and downs to that relationship. Um, so you'll in episode five, we're going to talk some more about that. And it was a very long interview, but there was just so much we wanted you all to hear that we decided to split it into two, piece, two pieces to make sure you got a chance to hear all of it. Yeah. So please do come back because that, that second part, it is very good. My heart is just like, oh. have been listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lene Lenape and Treaty 6 territory. If you like The Accessible Altar, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealter.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar. And join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, please email us at accessiblealter at gmail.com.